So hello everyone, and thank you for joining Every Moment is a Choice. My name is Erica Behel, and this is a podcast for people who are looking to understand their own unique courage. I talk with people who have inspired me with the choices they've made, in both in their career and in their personal lives. I am delighted today to have Prescott Gaylord with me. Hello, Prescott. Hi, Erica. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Oh, good. Before I talk more with Prescott about what he does, I wanted to share how I met Prescott. So a few months ago, I was actually invited to become part of a improv show. And this was something that scared me to be honest, but I was yet, I was excited to do it. However, so I had spoken on stage a few times and gotten used to telling a story or speaking to an audience. Um, and I've done lots of presentations in my corporate career, but I have never spoken extemporaneously on stage or improvised anything. So when I was asked, I said, of course said, I sure, you know, it sounded like a great opportunity. Um, and then I went and freaked out. So I was actually preparing for this show by creating a few stories. So a guest monologist is actually their role in an improv um, of this sort is actually to take some suggestions from the audience and create a story on the spot, which the improv group then uses as kind of a, a starter for their set. So I'm a, I'm a preparer. So I had actually prepared three or four stories in my head and I thought, you know what, I could by like two degrees of separation, create, you know, use any word that the audience could shout out and I could get to one of these stories. So I showed up the night of the show, um, still freaking out a bit. And I met Prescott and the rest of his, um, improv team, who we'll talk about later, and they're all fantastic professionals. They've been doing this for a long time. And, and Prescott said, you know what? Do, you don't need these pre, pre-made stories. We'll just do some warm-ups and we'll do some word associations. So over the course of maybe 10 minutes, I, I was part of the overall warm-up for the show that the improv group did. And, and we did some word associations and kind of put together a way of thinking that allowed me to create a story on the spot that night. And the improv team did a great job. They did a fantastic set. And um, what I noticed, I observed actually, from taking part in this show is that it was, it was very deliberate, right? So I, I felt that Prescott created um, a bit of, I would call it psychological safety uh, for the other performers on stage no matter if they're in his improv group or in one of the other improv groups to perform to their best, to know that they were supported, that they could take some risks. And I thought, you know what, upon reflecting upon this, I thought this is what teams need all over the place, right? So this is in the corporate world. This is a great way for teams to work together because so many companies and teams are in the process of transformation um, in terms of doing new things and you know, working through change, you have to have a team that is comfortable. Psychological safety is a way to bring out the best in the team. So that's what I wanted to talk about with Prescott today. 
Um, and before we kind of talk a little bit more about your improv career, tell us about yourself and what you care about, Prescott. Sure. First of all, I like that you called it a career. <laughs> I have an improv career. I sort of have uh, an improv habit that I have to feed with a career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do improv. I love improv, uh, as you saw. And what a lovely story. It's interesting to kind of hear what was in your head that night and, yeah. and how you prepared and everything. By day, uh, I work in corporate sustainability. So I manage operational portfolios and I get to build renewable energy on buildings and make sustainable buildings and try to make us carbon neutral and all that kind of thing. So I very much enjoy that as well. I'm not trying to quit my corporate job in order to do improv full-time. I kind of love everything I do. So yeah. I, that's, there's me in a nutshell, sustainability and comedy. I, I love the combination um, and it's really interesting to me that you are, um, what I've heard the term is, is creative double lifer oh. where you have a corporate career, but also have on the side, something that feeds your, your passion, your need to express yourself as well. So I think that's very cool. Um, how did you, how did you get into improv? We'll get back to the sustainability part, but I'm really curious about how you got into improv. Well, the I was 30, so I got into improv a lot later than a lot of people did. Hmm. Um, but I, I had remember seeing several improv shows, just silly college shows, you know, just little improv shows. And I, I was so uh, enthralled with what, and I like laughed until my stomach hurt watching an improv show. Yep. So then I had uh, an acquaintance one time send me uh, an audition notice that said, improv troupe, no experience necessary. <laughs> and so I said, we're going. So we went and we, we, we auditioned for an improv troupe and, uh, it was, it was bizarre not knowing anything about it, never had a class, never did anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was put in this improv troupe. I had to go take classes, uh, to learn various techniques and such, but I was hooked from there and I be. I started to perform. I started to teach. I started to direct troops. I started to coach troops and started to find the pieces I loved within improv. And as of now, I, I just like hanging out with the other comedians and making wonderful safe space, as you noted. It's one of my favorite things to do and to just have good shows. Very interesting. So what, what were those first few times like in terms of you obviously said you were learning, you had never taken a class. Did you experience something like that of the safety created by someone else who is more experienced or is that something that was, you kind of learned to do over time? The, mostly the latter. Now, for sure, mm. there were people in those early days who were trying to create safe space. And there's a lot of technique around improv, about it being very positive, about support of each other that are that was created in that early troupe. And I will be forever grateful to the people who made that. Um, I have also been in, there's lots in improv that is not safe, or at least doesn't feel safe. Yeah. Um, which is hard because at the beginning you're, you're usually terrible. And I was, so you have to be terrible for a little while yeah, and be willing to leave the stage and say, that was great. Let me come back and do that again. 
and be maybe less terrible until you're not or until you forget and don't care anymore and you're just in that flow of uh, kind of improvisational scene work and Mm -hmm. nothing matters. Yeah. Because I mean, improv to me, it's it's a team effort, right? You have to, you're not up there on your own, um, at least in your type of improv. So um, understanding that your your partners up there are going to take something that you've started and seamlessly connect it and add their own ideas, it takes a lot of, it seems like it takes, takes a lot of trust amongst them, um, not just safety. And I'm really curious about how that develops in an improv group. Like, does it, does it somehow just start to click or do you deliberately make some effort to bring in new improv group partners or like, how how does that work? Yes. I think it's extremely important to create a level of trust and a a feeling of we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And I think you noted that in your story because you showed up for a cage match and it's the one thing I didn't like about that particular show or those that particular series of shows is I think competitive improv is is uh, bizarre at best. I have other words for it, but it's very strange mm-hmm. because it feels to me, I, I'm going to go ahead and say wrong mm-hmm. uh, because I don't want to be competing against the other improv troops. Uh, you, you'll know we wanted to support them. We wanted to give them as much... Uh, as much positive feedback as possible. For the most part, they were not as experienced as we were, Mm -hmm. uh, the other troops. So we wanted to, you know, bring them along for that safe space because it's a very vulnerable thing they're doing. They're walking up on stage with nothing. Yeah. Uh, And then technically competing, having people vote on whether people like a more experienced troop better or them better, which is an insane thing to do in my opinion. And I sort of wish we didn't have to do it, but Mm -hmm. we... I don't know. We thought it was fun. Well, it was a fun competition. Yeah. So, so we had to, we went out of our way to, to take care of everybody. And it's, if you see any of my workshops or any of my training, I, I say over and over again, take care of each other. Uh, Cause I, it's the most important thing. If you're taking care of each other, I think it breeds that trust that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it, you can certainly feel the impact of that um, for someone who just came in for a brief period and performed with you guys on stage. So do you see in terms of the psychological safety? I mean, you've talked about it works with improv. Um, I would say it can work with improv. Okay. I'm not sure it always does. There's there's lots of times when we're, we don't feel safe, we're not safe. Hmm. Um, but even... Sorry to interrupt your question, but even I have definitely seen people who do not like each other still create that trust in a scene and Mm -hmm. they can play together because they both trust what they're doing. I have also seen people who like each other fine, but if you're going for quick laughs or they they don't have that psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've seen it go the other way as well. And it it, usually they go together. The good troops have amazing trust and the bad troops might not have as amazing trust, but not always. I've bizarrely seen it, seen people just are good enough to go the other way. Interesting. For me though, that's not fun. Mm-hmm. I don't care if I'm putting out great scene work. If I don't, to a little degree, love everybody I'm playing with and yeah. completely trust them, it's just not fun for me. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that um, what you are talking about is a choice you make. You would rather trust and play with people that you enjoy 
um, rather than making a ha ha ha, a fabulous, uh, you know, something that gets a lot of laughs from the audience. So that's a deliberate choice. And it's an interesting one uh, for me because I, I want to understand, you know, where, where does that come from in you? Um, so my instinct is to say, I think it comes from just getting old <laughs> and not caring anymore. No, no, uh, there's no uh, scout from SNL that's coming to Singapore watching us yeah. and going to cast us. Yeah. So, and we don't make enough money mm-hmm. to, to care. Yeah. So for me, I better just love every minute of what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so that's what I do. I go in and I play with people I like. I do scene work I like. I have a good time beforehand. I have a good time after. Yeah. And uh, maybe I, I drink some beer yeah. and that's the end. So you mentioned you do run workshops and you teach um, improv to aspiring aspiring performers as well. What is what is the hardest thing to teach? I mean, do, do you start with that element of how to work it as, as a team, being vulnerable together on a stage. Um, is that the, the step one? Like, how do you teach that? Well, I don't much teach uh, beginners anymore. Okay. Um, I teach only when I feel like it. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't teach like improv 101 anymore. Yeah. I just, uh, when I feel like teaching, I get mm-hmm. the bug. I, I call the theater Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I text the theater cause nobody calls anymore. <laughs> and I say, I'm going to do another master class four hours on this day. Yep. And so I'm usually teaching people who've done it for six months to two years. Right. Oh. Um, so with them, the hardest thing is to get them to let go. Mm. They all, there's this nervousness, uh, that I'm very familiar with cause I would have had it at that time. Right. Mm-hmm of, hey, I know all the techniques. I know all these things I'm supposed to be doing. So if you wander outside of it, there's this weird feeling of guilt or uh, hardship. Um, Or if you feel like you didn't support your partner, you you feel like you've ruined the world. Right. If I can get people to let go and just be present with their scene partners and just be in that state of enjoying the moment that they're in it, I have won that workshop. Yeah. So in general, that's what I try to teach. And that's a hard thing to teach because it needs to go into muscle memory. You can't tell somebody to let go and have them let go. I guess you can. It just doesn't work in my experience. If I were teaching beginners, the first thing you teach is, I mean, there's very basic set in stone improv technique that is, so many people do it because it's so good, right? The, the yes and theory of accepting what's there and adding information to it is such a simple, easy, powerful thing that everybody teaches and everybody does it. So that's where I start just like everyone else. Very interesting. Very cool. So I want to ask a little bit more. I've, I've shared the impact you had on, on me and what I observed you had on the other players that night at the cage match. Um, and psychological safety is such a a buzzword almost in leadership today. You hear about it in, in the corporate world. Um, you hear about it just about everywhere now. And so if, if you have leaders um, who are wanting to learn how to create psychological safety, but they're, not, they're ma- not managing an improv team, of course, they're managing a team of corporate employees. 
Do you think those lessons on, on psychological safety from improv apply? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's the reason a lot of corporates like to hire improv coaches to come do what they call applied improvisation. Oh. It's because a lot of these lessons apply very well to teamwork and creativity and, and, and all of these things. Psychological safety, it's funny, I've never really seen that applied in this way, uh, but I think you hit it spot on. Mm -hmm. I think that is part of it. Trust is what we normally would call it. Uh, yeah, people kind of call it psychological safety now, but they say it in terms of people need to be able to speak up. They need to be able to give their ideas that, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. If you want people to be able to to have teamwork, to work on each other's ideas, to be innovate. honest and trust each other, yeah, to innovate, they have to be able to feel like it's okay for them to fail. Yes. And so we we talk about an improv uh that you have to lean into the failure. Like it's actually kind of fun to fail. Hmm. And so we, we have a lot of exercises and show how fun it is to fail because that makes a good scene. Um, and you can actually come up with really good, um, really good innovations by, by failing at a number of other things. And everybody kind of knows that yeah. logically, but do we have that in muscle memory or do we get afraid? So it's the same thing. Um, if I were, doing a corporate masterclass, I would try to teach the exact same lesson as in my other masterclass, get you to let go right. and just be present with your team members and work on whatever you're working on in that full and complete trust. If I can do that, that would also be a win. I think it would be beneficial for that team as well. Yeah. And if we could find a way to get past failures by acknowledging them and not not creating a sense of guilt or anything in a, in a corporate team as well. That would be something that could really unleash, I think, more innovation because yeah, people have to feel comfortable, you know, with their team as well to innovate. Yeah. Except yeah. if I'm, if I went to uh, coach a team yeah. of people doing terrible work, I, I would let them remain afraid. <laughs> Let's just, people should do that. We should, we should go into corporations that we hate and who are doing terrible things to the world. And we should just teach them to be afraid of each other and to not innovate anymore so yeah. that maybe the company will start failing bigger. Yeah. And stop innovating. This is, I'm going to start a new company, but then we have to trick them into hiring us. Yes. All right. If you would get to work on that business plan, I will get to work on the trainings. <laughs> we'll, we're going to make this happen. Stealth, stealth failures. Stealth failures. Yeah. Yes. So that's a, actually a good segue when you're talking about um, companies overall. Now you have worked, if you, if I called improv your career, I don't know why I call sustainability. It's probably your it's my habit, your calling. Maybe. My hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but you have been working in sustainability for most of your career. All of it. All of it. Yeah. So it's obviously something that you care about. And with sustainability and things like climate change, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies making, making promises about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of innovation going on, which is great. And, you know, environmental um, change and climate change is a huge global challenge. And, I've heard, yeah. And I personally believe, I know you've heard. I personally believe like, you know, we have in the world, if we were going to make an, a, a good stab at resolving some of the human-induced climate change, right? We have the money, we have the resources, we have 
technology. What we are lacking is the willingness to actually make the sacrifices or the courage to actually change our behaviors, I, I believe. So that if we want to, if we want to actually make a big impact, people have to start changing their behaviors, right? I, I think this is a, a very key thing to this. And I want to know your thoughts on that and how psychological safety might work in, into yeah. that as well. Um, so I think there's not a lot of behaviors that have to change. Hmm. I also think it is not that valuable to try and get a mass number of people to change their behaviors. Mm -hmm. And this is, I'm sort of in the minority in sustainability work mm -hmm. here. Uh, so it's, this is the part that is, uh, I, I don't want to say I'm unique in this. There are, there are plenty of people who believe this, but it, we're not in the majority of people who even work in sustainability or climate change. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we should stop trying to get people, we should refocus mm -hmm. and move away from trying to get uh, you to stop flying and to uh, eat vegetarian and to whatever, take, uh, take public transit whenever possible. Like mm -hmm. all of those things are good and all of those things do make a difference. Yep. But trying to get everybody to do that, even if it worked, even if we succeeded at doing that, let's say we, we got 300 million people to all do that, sure. we would still be in trouble. Yep. It's not impactful enough. It's not valuable enough. Mm. Whereas... Uh, I'm going to try to do some statistics off the top of my head with nothing in front of me, okay. but it's it's something like five percent of the top power plants make seventy two percent of all emissions from all of electricity, right? Right. So we don't need to focus on getting you to stop flying, although mm -hmm. maybe you should. We we need to get those twenty five coal plants offline. Mm -hmm or to switch to something renewable or to change those. Right. So the infrastructure, we need infrastructure change and we need kind of corporate change and we need um, behavior change, but we focus way too much on the behavior change. We yeah. have to focus on the infrastructure. And that's where the big impact is. The behavior change can follow. Very interesting. I, so I understand the statistics um, well, maybe you can explain them to me. No, I, I barely understand. I know I'm working at it. I, I understand your argument using the statistics <laughs> is what I meant to say. Um, and that behavioral change will impact some, right? Like you said, it'll, it'll yeah. move the needle a bit. Um, and if we're going to make big changes, but in, in any type of big global challenge like this, say it's, I used climate change, but there's yeah. inequality, there's, um, inequitable access to healthcare resources. There's all kinds of global challenges out yeah. there. And some of it's going to take courageous leaders who are willing to sacrifice some short-term profits or sacrifice their own, um, you know, remuneration in order to get better results for more people. Right. So yeah. that's courageous behavior in my, in my opinion. Yeah. It, it will take, Let's see, given your example, hmm. there are lots of examples that I can point to of various courageous individuals. Mm -hmm. There are, you know, the, the, the people in the world who decided, you know, the, whatever, some first nations person who decided to take care of their forest, yep. you know, the, some, somebody who decided to clean up their riverbed and, 
and change the way that works. Someone who decided to, you know, test the PCBs in the, in the river outside of their, you know, in, in, in their village. And do, like, there's so many people who decided to live with no carbon, you know, yeah. there are all these people who've done all these things and very create, courageous. And I think they're wonderful and they're my heroes, but you're right. It will take somebody courageous or some handful of courageous people who are in charge of something large yeah. to say, sorry, in my city, we are going to uh, make sure there's biodiversity and no plastics and, you know, whatever they decide in their city that's important so that, you know, whatever, seven generations from now, what, people who don't even remember me will be able to enjoy this. Yeah. Uh, it will take people in governments to say, look, we're going to have to allow these things and not allow those things. Mm-hmm. And, and those that, I don't know how to make them be courageous because mm-hmm. they have a lot of pressures on them from various places as well. Yep. But yeah, that's where the impact can happen. Correct. And they all need to, we need to sit them in a room, give them some psychological safety, t- teach them how to tell <laughs> stories, you know, and uh, let them let them make butt jokes and uh, give them all some courage and uh, teach them all how to do something really hard that yeah. some of those individuals with a river outside their house have already done. Yeah. And I wish I could make the CEOs and the presidents as courageous as the, the little girl who tests for PCBs because she learned it at school or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's going to take, obviously, like you mentioned, it's going to take the, the decisions made by people in charge um, however, they have a lot of people are going to make this happen, right? It's not going to be the the implementation done by just a few. And I think it's it's around allowing people the space to, like we said, innovate and come up with solutions to these problems. Um, so that's where I think the psychological safety comes in. Is is there is so much of a of a call on workers now. Um, to participate in transformation programs, in change, in big visions that are put forth. And how do you actually motivate people to want to do that? Um, and creating a space where they can where they can fail and they can come up with something um, better in its place. Maybe they all just need to listen to your podcast. I don't and, know. And they're going to learn how to be courageous and to make uh, non-traditional choices with their lives. And then they're going to save us all. I think it's valuable to uh, to do what you think is right. Um, I for sure have put myself in a place in the corporate world where I don't have a ways to climb in corporate management and leadership mm-hmm. because I don't care. I don't care. I care a little bit about making uh, various companies better. Mm-hmm. But like I was joking about earlier, I kind of want to make good companies better. And I want to make, uh, let's say, amoral or, or bad companies. I don't care what they do, except I, I, want them to, I want them to clean up their dirty assets. And I, maybe I want to help them clean up their dirty assets. I want to help them do certain things. Yeah. But I, I don't want to make, I don't know, I don't want to lead them well. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's... Maybe there's that. It's not just evil companies either. Like I, I'm really only interested in companies who are on purpose trying to do good things yeah. because we're in a place where we're, 
we're past the time where we can be neutral on sustainability stuff. I think that's really interesting what you just said. We're it's beyond the point where we can just remain neutral. Yeah. You have to be kind of for something. Yeah. Oh, I sound like what was the president who said you're either with us or against us? That was uh, was it George W. Bush. George, Actually, what he said is, I think you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. So I'm going to start to use that. You're either with me, you're either for biodiversity and inclusion, or you're with the or, terrorists. Or you're with the terrorists. So that's I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn profile. But I, I think that's I think that's so key because I think in in companies today, at least the ones I've worked in, people are people are less less likely to be allowed to have a kind of nine to five job where it is just their paycheck. I think a lot of teams are being called upon now to align themselves with the company purpose, to devote a lot of their, their brain power and their time to serving a company purpose. And so if you're not aligned with it, um, and if it's something that's not serving you as well, it's more difficult to find yourself, um, satisfied by that type of work and fulfilled. Yeah. Yes, you know, I'm really lucky right now. Mm. I will say, in so many ways. Mm. In so many ways, I'm very lucky uh, and very privileged, I guess some would say. But I happen to work for a company where I'm fairly aligned with with its stated mission, you mm-hmm. know, um, this kind of better world theory. Uh, and that is great. I definitely have worked for places, and I. it's so funny, I don't think I would mind a place with its stated mission was kind of terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I worked for a place and there was like, we we're trying to make money for ourselves at the expense of everyone, mm-hmm. I'd be like, this is, this is so blatantly honest. I don't know what to do with myself. That's fine. But what I find most difficult, and I think this is where more of the difficult companies are, is they have stated missions and visions that are, that feel positive, right. but the culture inside is not that way. So, you know, this whatever, this place is meant to like build character and, and do good things. It's like, well, what we do this and this and this is like, well, we got to, you know, we have to, our yeah. competitors are, it's, you know, we can defend that in some way that feels moral to us. And it's clearly not to any uh, observer. So that's the part that I think is difficult. I have worked for those places. Mm-hmm. I've certainly observed those places. And that is where I think the problem is. Yeah is in the organizations that feel like they are doing good things or at least say they are, but are backed in a corner. They feel like they're backed in a corner, so they have to do bad things to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. So if you work for any one of those companies, uh, you should hire our company, Stealth Failure, (laughs) and we will do all of your team building for you. So go to at... Stealth failures on, uh, let's say Instagram, because mm-hmm. uh, Twitter's going to go away. Yep. And uh, hire us. We'll come train your people. We'll get you sorted. Yeah. Nice. Very interesting turn this has taken. What in the fake company we've set up <laughs> to to try to ruin companies? You didn't know we were going to go there from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> That's not on your little sheet. It's- <laughs> not what I had planned, um, but I kind of like it. So if you had, if you have a leader out there who's, who's thinking, you know what? Um, and the answer you cannot give me is just, okay, hire me in for a workshop, 
But if you're actually... Oh, do not, give, do not hire me for a workshop. <laughs> you can do that later. But if you're going to give kind of one or two pointers yeah. to a leader that says, listen, I we have a big job to do with this team, right? And mm. I need to, I need to um, create an environment that is more conducive to them taking risks. Um, what is any practical advice you could give them? Sure. Uh, actually, I do think I have an answer to this. Mm-hmm. The, I've seen wonderful things come out of projects where we made one rule, which is to start with one question at the beginning of any process. And that is, how can this decision or this project make the world better? So I think if you start there, it refocuses all of the things you think you have to do or you thought you had to do. Mm-hmm. So if it's um, building an innovative team, which I think is what you're, you're noting, mm-hmm. um, or a safe team or a trustful mm-hmm. team, start with how can I make this team so that the world is a little bit better? And I think... I think whatever this team does, it might help you refocus on what's important. Because honestly, it might not be important to get everybody, well, it's important. It might not be the most important thing for you to get uh, uh, Jake from marketing to trust uh, uh, other Jake from accounting, right? The the Jakes always had this thing. And so we, to make sure that they (laughs) trust each other probably would make your team better, but it might not be the most important thing. It might be important for you to make sure your product is not toxic, right? And if you say, hey, Jake and Jake, I need you to, we we have an important thing to do. How how can we make our product make the world better? And one of the Jakes might say, you know, I've always thought maybe we can, maybe we don't have to paint the product. Maybe we can just leave all of the, the toxic stuff off. I've always thought we can do this thing because my, my daughter would like it if it if it did this and maybe the world's a little bit better. Jake and Jake might trust each other better if they're working on something beautiful rather yeah. than they're just working to get a paycheck. Yeah. So that's the first thing I would do, which is I think the psychological safe space can follow better world thinking. I would really love it if everyone would put me out of a job so that you all are doing the work yourselves in your, in your things. So you don't need me to talk to you about circular economy and, and better world thinking. So I can just go do improv and start stealth companies and hang out with the Jakes at night. Cause honestly, they're fun. We're, we're getting this company started. Yeah. I mean, it's already decided I'm, I'm on Instagram right now, creating an account for, I'm going to poach Jake if that's okay. <laughs> we'll just, which Jake? Well, we'll, we'll see if, I don't know what headcount we can start <laughs> off with. Depends on our venture capital. What? What impact would you like to leave on the world personally? Um, I'm going to get depressed thinking about that because I, I'm trying to solve these big issues and I really would like to, and I'm pretty sure I won't, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave the corporate world and I will not have solved climate change or climate change in finance or climate change in the building sector. I will not have convinced everybody to, to have made that change. Um, so maybe the mark I would like to leave on the world is more people being able to start anything they're doing with what I was calling better world thinking. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I can do something, it's, it's that. I really like that. Plus this company, Stealth the Failure, company two started. things. Yep. And if the Jakes could hug it out, 
I would be, if I can go three things, <laughs> three things. So Prescott, before we finish, how can any listeners find out more about you and your improv group as well? You can find us on Instagram at, at new kitten party, new kitten party. And uh, come see our shows. We're fun. Perfect. And you're based in Singapore. I am based in Singapore. Right. You can't come see our shows unless you're in Singapore. <laughs> um, do you guys uh, put any of your shows online? I've seen snippets. But uh, do you guys I record? think we only do snippets. I don't really take care of anything. Yeah. So I don't know. But I don't, you know, putting out, it takes a lot to make a good recorded improv show that looks good. So yeah. usually you just got to go see it live. Awesome. Well, I hope every listener um, gets a chance to see you guys because you guys are awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Well, I'll see you at the kickoff meeting of our startup. Yes. Well, we'll we're going to get started next week. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.